When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. On Commons People this week. Under the last Labour government, corporation tax was 28%. By the way, they don't call it the last Labour government for nothing. Good gag, but could it be Philip Hammond's last budget after he broke a manifesto promise? I don't in any way criticise her for this. She's got a man-sized job to do. The man known as Tarzan was booted out of the jungle this week after defying government orders on Brexit. I think I am duty-bound to not be that sort of shrinking flower that goes, oh, you know, I just couldn't possibly. And Jess Phillips for Labour leader. All of this and more on Commons People. And welcome to Commons People. I'm Owen Bennett, and this week I'm joined by Ned Simons and Paul War. Hello, chaps. All right. Hello. Got Hello. Your, got your budget books in front Owen. of you. Red book Some at the ready. Hardcore analysis at the ready. Right. Let's go. As Philip Hammond delivered his first budget yesterday, it all seemed to be going so well for the Tory Chancellor. Growth up, more money for social care, and some actual funny jokes seem to indicate Hammond was on course for a successful statement. But that feeling was short-lived as Hammond announced national insurance contributions for the self-employed would be going up. Why is that a problem? Well, let's just remind ourselves of what David Cameron said ahead of the 2015 election. I make this pledge that if you elect me as your Prime Minister, there'll be no increase in VAT, no increase in national insurance, no increase in income tax. What it says right there on that pledge card. Why can I make this pledge? Because I've seen the books. Yes, the Tories have broken a manifesto pledge not to increase national insurance. And this morning, many backbenchers are calling for the Chancellor to think again. Here's Ian Duncan-Smith. I would like to see this kept under review. We've got two budgets this year. We've got this one, which I think is small. But in October, we've got another budget where we start the new cycle. And I'd like for this period to have a chance to reflect on that with this report coming in, to think about how this lands and whether or not, you know, you want to look at adjustment. So, it's like the old days, isn't it? Omni-shambles or omnic-shambles. There was such a lived sure um, construction. And you nick that. You nick that from many people. I mean, let's just go straight away. Did they break the manifesto pledge? Yeah. Obviously. Right. And Hammond, as much as he tried to get around it on the Today programme this morning, it's just, it was ludicrous. I've never, I think it was an absolute mincing of an interview from Nick Robinson of him. I don't think I've heard a kind of worse post-budget interview with a Chancellor that it, I can it's remember. because he's trying to defend the indefensible. I mean, it's just obvious they've broken the election pledge. I mean, it's just obvious. They're, they're coming up with all sorts of excuses to how they did it and, you know, why they did it, but they did it. And what I, if I were them, I would have just come clean and said, look, you know, we we sorry we we might have misled the voters we said we weren't going to do this but actually it was it was we should have been clearer they should have at least hold the hand up a little bit now of course they're not going to do that why why are they not going to do that even in any small form because saying you've broken an election promise is so toxic because of the current state of politics and most people have a little faith in politicians as it is Theresa May goes on and on about the reason we've got a Brexit means Brexit is because the voters voted for it. And if we don't deliver it, the voters will be upset 
set in a way they haven't in a generation. So that's all about trust. And when politicians are trying to win back that trust slowly, and it's taken a long time since the expenses scandal, and over time it's taken a long time, they've been misled. I, so here's a good example of something in black and yeah. white where they've just not been straight. And I think also Theresa May's kind of set it up herself for the fool because soon after she was um, made leader... She kind of had a bit of wiggle room, perhaps, to subtly say, well, not everything in the manifesto was up to me. It was David Cameron and Osborne. Yeah. She could have hinted at that, but she didn't. I remember her on Mar, I think, saying, no, this is the same manifesto. It's that we're running. It's the same policies. So she's gone out of her way to say she's not going to break pledges but and then is, does it. This is my, my confusion over this. Not confusion, but one of Theresa May's justifications for not calling a snap election was re-elected on a manifesto in 2015. Yeah. Now, all of a sudden, if you start then on, you know, putting the threads away from that manifesto, as you have done on, you know, famously on safeguarding Britain's interest in the single market and now on national insurance, mm. surely the case for, well, you haven't got a mandate, grows, and grammar school's another yeah. one, grows even stronger, right? I agree, but, I mean, the, the, the fact is that I don't think any of them are going to hold up their hands and say, we broke an election promise. The, the difficulty, actually, is how they now get out of this hole. And I think the best way would be if somehow they follow what Ian Duncan Smith and a lot of these Tory rebels are now saying, which is amend this proposal. In other words, don't junk it completely. So you will still breach the election promise, but make sure that the people who are hit are not white van men, are not constituents who are key swing voters. So have some sort of cap like, for example, at the moment, this this national insurance rise which is quite complicated but basically if you're self-employed and you earn less than 16,000 then you actually are exempt you you yeah. see you see a benefit so what they need to do is sh- shift the figures so that if you're sort of in the lower t- tax band even under 40 grand not 16 grand but under 40 grand or something like that then you're not hit then they'll get out of it politically i think but but, but, then, but then there's a hole in the economics because the whole idea of doing this is to raise that money is a problem social yeah but it's not a huge amount of money it's net 145 million a, a year and in, in one particular year and i think they can cope with that with tinkering at it and given that there are Tory rebels like IDS now senior people, I think that's enough for the whips to get worried. That's why number 10 today refused to answer four times whether or not it, it would be reversed. And uh, Hammond did say he's prepared to listen to backbenchers this morning as well, which was yeah. the first maybe little sign there yeah. that will happen. That's the, that's the political argument. If you think about the economic argument, I mean, surely it is right that if you're self-employed and you enjoy the benefits that the national insurance payments provide, that you should put in the same... As an employee person. Oh, and you're, you're turning into a Treasury spokesman. The problem is that you may well be right, and a lot of left-wing think tanks, you know, Edmund Van's former special advisor, Torsten Bell, who runs the Resolution Foundation, a lot of people like the IFS have all said, yeah, this makes sense. It's a progressive move, you know. Uh, it helps people at the bottom rather than those at the top, and it, it, it gets rid of this weird anomaly between the pl- employed and self-employed. But that doesn't wash because we've got an election pledge really a very specific one a read my lips no new taxes type election pledge and you cannot go around tearing those up as if they're just you know chancellor's rules it's just tuition fees you, you just can't yeah. do that you just can't because yeah, there, there will be payback and the payback is the next time you promise anything in your manifesto you will not be believed that's why it really but really matters for immigration though immigration they said you know before 2010 no ifs no buts we'll get immigration down to below 100,000 if we don't do it kick us out of office said David Cameron 
what yeah, happened. But they got they got they got a bigger majority. So maybe maybe the voters don't care. Compl- no, that's absolutely true. But you can't say that they've abandoned the pledge. They haven't deliberately legislated to abandon that pledge. That's what's different about this. And you're right. The punters don't read every cough and spit of manifestos. Of course they don't. That's our job. Absolutely. But what they do see are adverts, are party political broadcasts, are online ads, emails discussions amongts their friends saying, oh, the Tories have decided you're not going to put up your taxes in, in your pay. That's basically what it means. That's what most people understand as NI or income tax. They, they had an understanding in 2015, Tories won't do anything to put up my taxes, whatever they're called, in my pay packet. So, and they're breaching that. <clears throat> so this was obviously the thing that's dominated the headlines. I mean, it was obvious it was going to dominate the headlines. Not to Jeremy Corbyn, who didn't mention it at all no, in his response. No, that's completely it. untrue. Is it completely untrue? Jeremy Corbyn did mention self-employed. I apologise. What did he say then? It's in the war zone this morning. In fact, a whole <laughs> sentence of what he said. What did he say? He said the the we've been concerned for some time about the fact that the self-employed, uh, you know, uh, there's this big change in the economy and people are, are getting ripped off. However, we never expected the self-employed themselves to pay for this change. That's basically what he said. So he did oh, say it. He did say it. Okay. It's it's not in everyone's interest, but he did say he it. He did say it. Let me rephrase this. <laughs> Jamie <laughs> Corbyn did not. Pivots his request <laughs> to the budget yep. upon what seemed to be the most glaringly obvious bit of it. As one Tory MP said to me yesterday, that he thought it was bizarre because obviously the MPs are all cheering every announcement that Hammond did. And then when he announced the, the NI stuff, they all sat there a bit quietly. He's like, oh God, I hope he gets off with this soon. And at that point, Corbyn should have gone, hold on a minute. Yeah. This is obviously where the hole in the budget was here. But what other stuff was there in the budget? There was some good stuff on social care, two extra two billion for social care, an extra hundred million for triage services to yeah. help reduce any waiting times. I mean, obviously, it wasn't a huge amount of money, and actually. Um the, the big problem with the NI row is it's distracted from all this good stuff. And that's why number 10 will be absolutely hopping mad. And the Treasury that, you know, this row has blown up and it's kind of needless row over a small amount of money, 145 million, as I say. And that's sort of deflected all the front pages away from what could have been good news budget. We're giving two billion extra to the NHS. We're helping social care. We're actually trying to combat a winter crisis in the NHS next year. Now, admittedly, none of that is really uh, enough, the, the medical profession would say. And Labour would say as well. But at least it's in the right direction. That would have been smart politics if that was the story from yesterday. But it wasn't. There is other stuff in the budget, obviously. I mean, there was also a lovely little sort of hint that in the next, in the autumn budget, the first autumn budget, this was the last spring budget, that we could get a diesel uh, tax rise um, and that, you know, diesel cars could be properly hit to reflect the fact they're polluting the atmosphere. Now, again, that could be controversial with a lot of Tory MPs, but it could be very popular with some centrist voters. Now, Ned, you popped along today to the Institute for Fiscal Studies. I nearly forgot then what they were. The Institute for Fiscal (laughs) Studies uh, think tank, who always do these briefings after the budget, which everyone goes along to. And they basically have spent all night putting the, the numbers into the computer. So we don't have to do anything ourselves. Exactly, whirling yeah. it round and then putting yeah. out a nice number if this is a good or a bad budget. So we're going to... This, this, by the way, listen, this is the In Case You Missed It bit <laughs> this week because we thought this would be quite good. We're all we like, in case you missed you, it. Yeah, usually you go to these, um, these briefings, you get the speech, you have kind of half an hour to read through it and every time I've been, so every year, which is quite a few years now, there's usually some obvious Ned, 73 thing, years old. Yeah, of the... Don't look it though. I mean, I do. And then the IFS says usually, you know, more austerity, that's always the kind of the big story. But this time it was different because it was the IFS praising the national insurance um, raise. So that was the main thing that came out of it. But what has maybe then be overlooked is also in their analysis, they point out 
that there's been 15 years of no pay rise for people and we're going into a third parliament of austerity. So whilst this, the kind of the, the top bit of this IFS analysis, like Paul was mentioning with the, the press being perhaps distracted by, by the national insurance story, the underlying thing still going on here is austerity and is people's living standards just not rising. A kind of unprecedented uh, lack of increase in people's and also people's money. ten years of no economic growth really is what mm. they've said. Yeah, I mean it's it's really really damning. Let's be honest. And the the fact is that if you are a sort of average earning worker, your wages are getting squeezed, and you know the next few years it doesn't look like there's any end in sight of it either. So for a lot of young people entering the labour market or, or relatively new in the labour market, that's a real problem. And it is young people as well. I think there was another IFS report out recently that showed how um, pensioners are doing quite well or will be doing quite well up to 2020, uh, 2022. But the kind of poorer, low-income families and children will suffer the most. So whilst everyone's kind of doing not very well, it, it's not everyone together. We're not all in it together. And there's a pr- few problems in this which worth are worth unpicking, which is that in a nutshell, we've still got a big productivity problem in Britain. We're not as productive as other countries. We've not worked out how to solve that. The decades, Labour and Tories have failed to grasp that. But also, there's this... Um, phenomenon about the wages squeeze and the uh, the income squeeze, which has been going on since, also under New Labour as well. They spotted it first happening about two thousand and four, two thousand and five. They've picked it up before the crash, and some academics think it is just a consequence of globalisation finally working. That you know capitalism works, and when it works, it screws wages. You know for most workers, and it and it shares its capital where it wants to put it, and that the rise of the Chinese economy. And lots of other reasons mean that actually Western world's wages, it's not just Britain, are being squeezed. And it's a long term problem. And most politicians in the West haven't really grappled with it. Uh, so there's, it's, it's a deep-seated problem. Whether or not this government can do any better than any other government remains to be seen. But it, it's certainly a problem. And as, as Ned says, the other thing that was, in case you missed it in the IFS budget, was all this, the stuff that tends to get missed, including the fact that I think they said that actually the benefit cuts, which are due to kick in next year, are actually, uh, or this year, are actually going to have much more impact than, than even the wages squeeze and, and all the other things that have been announced in recent years. Because... There are particularly, say, if you're a family with three or four children, you get clobbered under those benefits changes. Or if you're on um, uh, employment support allowance, you've got a disability, you get clobbered. And that, to be fair yeah. to Jeremy Corbyn, he's been raising. And that was the main thing in this IFS report, essentially, was like, you know, this, this budget wasn't that large in terms of measures, but watch out, a lot of stuff's coming down, down the tracks quite quickly. Yeah. And just finally, <clears throat> we're used to, uh, we have an omni-shambles budget, as I know now. We're used to a U-turn eventually coming somewhere down the line. Um, I, do you think there's going to be a U-turn on this? I mean, I get a sense from talking to some Tories at the 1922 committee meeting last night that one Tory in particular stood up and said to the Chancellor, look, we will go and defend this, right? We'll defend this thing for you. But if you turn around in a week's time and all of a sudden you say, no, we're going to change our mind, we're not going to do it, as Osborne used to do, yeah. as IDS used to do with benefit, all that kind of stuff, then that's really going to annoy us. Yeah. So uh, I don't think, because I think... I think the Hammond is, is more of an economic chance than the political one. I think he will just go, yep, yeah, everyone, you know, the, the right people are saying it's the right thing to do, i.e., the think tanks, so I'm going to keep doing it. Well, let's look at it politically. 
it's early in this government's sort of honeymoon period. It, in a way, it can afford to take up some of this heat. But if it's not having a snap general election, and it looks like it isn't on the basis of yesterday's budget, and if it's going long to 2020, it could soak this up. It could say, right, OK, we're going to give up some more sweeties next year. We're going to help self-employ. We're going to give them paternity rights. You know, we're going to give them possibly holiday pay. That will keep them quiet. So if they come up with something to counterbalance it, yeah, you're right. But I do think breaching a manifesto pledge is so corrosive for the next manifesto that I suspect that Theresa May and Philip Hammond will have to sort of think again. I really do. It's time for this week's quiz, brought to you once again by Sarah Ann Harris. Thank you for being here, Sarah, because earlier on you were locked in a room, weren't you, in this building? You were locked in the nap room we oh, have I, here. HuffPost Towers. so HuffPost. <laughs> how, long were you, uh, how long were you locked in the nap room for? I mean, Four the, time, the time between realising I was stuck and sending many panicked messages yeah. very short. Yeah, sure. Um, it felt the, like forever. It yeah. felt like forever. Honestly, when you're stuck, I, like, the whole team came down to save slash shame me. Oh Yeah, yeah. So, thanks so, for uh, support, everybody. That's yeah. all right. You're Gla- welcome. Glad you're here. Must try harder next time to really... Bust that lot. Anyway, go on. The, the quiz is on the budget, is it? Yes. I've uh, got a bit of uh, budget history for you. Oh, Because I love history. Yes. So, first question. Who had the first red box made for the budget? Oh, oh what a question. There's all these quiz questions every year come up and then you forget. All right, let's show you working. Just come on. I mean, I don't Gladstone? know. Gladstone? Disraeli. Disraeli, one of those. It was Gladstone. Oh, Paul actually reported on that as a young reporter. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, um, it was actually used, the original was used by every UK Chancellor until 2011, apart from Callaghan and Brown. Really? That's a fun fact. Yeah, yeah they mm. both insisted on having their own, mm. their own ones. But it's now been retired. So. Right, good. There you go. Question two. <laughs> Gladstone has uh, the record for the longest budget speech, four hours, 45 minutes, what did he drink to keep him going? Uh, he drank... Oh, oh. I am... Br- no. Um, Good. He would have drunk... He would have drunk gin, I reckon. Gin? Sort of hipster elderflower? <laughs> no, I'm uh, guessing... Yeah, whiskey. whiskey. Surely. Surely whiskey. No, a delicious-sounding mixture of egg and sherry. Oh. Nice. Mm. Nice. So that sounds like some kind of like weird protein. Yeah. Mm. That's probably... Yeah, ripe for a comeback. Ooh, gross. Uh, okay, question three. What did Norman Lamont once put in his red box instead of the budget speech? I know this. It's a bottle of whiskey. Yeah, can you tell me why? Uh, I can't remember why, but I remember William, William Hague was his advisor, and William Hague was sent out with the speech in like a little bag, and so Norman Lamont was holding up the red box with a bottle of whiskey in, and Hague was thinking, my God, I hope that box is locked properly, because if it just falls over, <laughs> his bottle of whiskey falls out, it might be quite good. It was because he thought it would look bad if he carried the, the bottle of whiskey. Why did he have to have the bottle of whiskey yeah. on it? <laughs> they, they'd had uh, a few, a few whiskeys for lunch. Yeah, Norman Lamont. Yeah, idea. Spain's a lot, doesn't it? Black Wednesday. Always making a bit more sense <laughs> now, isn't it? Okay, question four. Why did George Ward Hunt find himself in a bit of a pickle when he arrived at the Commons to deliver his budget in 1869? Oh God! Oh, I say whiskey again. I said whiskey for every yeah. question. <laughs> had Something he on for- the brain. Had he forgotten the budget? Yeah, he must have forgotten the budget. He had left it at home. Oh, did he make it up then? Uh, <laughs> probably just like invade somewhere and we'll pay for Let's it. Let's raise the taxes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And final question: Why did Rab Butler announce that the sugar ration would be increased? 
the what? his sugar, sugar ration, ration. Ooh. Increased. increased from 10 ounces to 12 because he loved sugar why? why why is it why, Ooh, why? He gave a, an interesting reason is it it's like, his, like his kid really liked sugar. Yeah. Something like, yeah. Anti-sugar We were tax. allowed to have bananas or something for the first time. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> what? No, no, but yeah. Yeah, bananas were back like in 1948 or something. Yeah. Because they were rationed completely. They were banned. Well, so to celebrate the bananas being back, Absolutely. you think he raised the sugar ration? Was it because no it was in the evening, Sunday, the evening standard? No, that was the standard <laughs> breaching the budget. Right. But No. No, Go uh, on. so it was actually to help the nation make celebratory cakes for the Queen's coronation that year. Oh, oh 1950. 1950. 1950. Wow. Oh, if you just said that, I would have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. The dots would have been joined. Thank you, Sarah. You're Good. Go on, off you go, and try not to get locked anywhere. Thanks, so Sarah. mean. I know. Try and get locked somewhere. You're listening to Commons People. Another week, another defeat for the government over Brexit in the Lords. On Tuesday, peers voted in favour of giving a so-called meaningful vote to Parliament on the Brexit deal before Theresa May signs it off with the EU. The government are opposed to enshrining such a vote in law as they believe it would encourage the EU to give us a bad deal for some reason. One Tory not convinced by the government's argument was Lord Heseltine, who lost his job as an advisor when he backed the amendment. After his sacking, the 83-year-old former Deputy Prime Minister made a surprising admission. I don't think I've ever met Theresa May. I, we may have been in the same sort of collegiate circumstance years and years ago, but I've certainly uh, not met her. So Hez is gone. You never met the PM. I mean, that's weird. I, I can't... I mean... Because even I've met the PM, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> me too. Yeah. And he's we're, old. We're, he's old. He, he forgot. You saying he forgot? Clearly. All women look the same, right? Am I right? Am I right? I did spend a long time trying to find a picture of the two of them together and I couldn't. So therefore you must be telling the truth. I mean to be fair, if you'd met Theresa May, apart from when she was Prime Minister, even when she was Home Secretary, she's kind of anonymous sometimes. Yeah, but she's still the Home Secretary. <laughs> I know, but you know, you say, I can't imagine, you know, him meeting her at some sort of meeting with anyone else and, and not making a why deep impression. Because <laughs> she that, I think that's the real her. reason. She's been waiting for this for ages. <laughs> Remember now, do you? Even Thatcher didn't get the, the pleasure of firing him, don't forget. He walked out. He, 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 so he obviously stormed that, out, didn't that, he? That's why, you know... Um, Chopping his mane off is actually quite satisfying for her. Although, you know, even some Tories who I know who really disagree with Hesselton on Europe thought it was a bit silly because, you know, this is a guy who's 83. He's got a lot to give. You know, he's a public servant. He could easily just be sitting at home looking at his arboretum. And that is a collection of trees. Owen, Fine, I don't know what the hell you're talking <laughs> um, Nothing rude. But so he could easily be relaxing in his, late, his later years. And what's he doing? He's actually spending a few days a week doing? going up and down the country with Greg Clark and with Sajid Javid trying to work out these really boring things called city deals because he really believes in public service. He wants to deliver devolved government. He wants to regenerate cities and towns. And we can talk about that later. You know, this is a guy who's, you know, driven a lot of British regeneration. He Docklands would not exist without Michael Hesseltine. Now, you can say you might hate a lot of the fact that Docklands is what it is, but boy, has it generated a lot of income for Britain and it's created lots of housing and it's regenerated a whole part of East London. Same goes for Liverpool. Same goes for, you know, something as simple as extending the M40, which used to stop near Oxford. He extended it up to Birmingham created this fantastic corridor between Birmingham and London, which has, you know, created lots of economic growth. Simple, big things like that 
wouldn't have happened without Michael Heseltine. But there was a lot of Tory backbenchers who uh, were very unhappy when it was when it was initially sort of mooted that Heseltine was going to vote against the government and that, it, that, that no action was going to be taken. I know quite a few Tory backbenchers were really angry about that and they really wanted to see some disciplinary action taken against Heseltine. So this is just another example of Theresa May giving in again to the hard Eurosceptic right of her party. Possibly. What left is there to, 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 it, 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 to? As I say, it seemed a bit odd because he's an unpaid role. He does this voluntarily. So she could know. have not. Like Ned. Yeah. <laughs> she didn't have to fire him because he didn't technically have a ministerial job. So no. She could have he wasn't, well, I was told by number it. 10, oh, he's, he's, got, got, he's got bound by collecting ministerial responsibility. No, he, he, he has he a, desk, a desk, yeah. basically. And I know that people like Greg Clark really rate his expertise because he would go in and talk to council leaders because he's done it for years and years and he knows the way it works. He knows how to get deals done, how to you know fix things, how to make sure that each party gets what it wants. You know, basic politics. And he was he is popular. And he was popular. I mean, he still is popular with the grassroots membership of the Tory party. There's a famous quote that when... You know what I'm going to say. Go on. That uh, Margaret Hedgesheim could find the clitoris at the Conservative Party conference whenever he spoke. Uh, I don't like how you're moving your hand when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> so unnerving. No, but that's the quote though, right? I've not made that up, have I? You haven't made it up. Thank you very much. Although, uh, in that was the old Tory party. I think, you know, in recent years, obviously the Euroscepticism has, is, has gone through its veins and that's neutered that kind of appeal, let's right. be honest. So uh, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't overdo his appeal amongst the grassroots. Boris <laughs> Johnson now. Um, but anyway, so we got this. We've got to stop it. The listener won't be liking this. James Grow Davis up. will like it. Uh, we've got. A, we've got. A, look, they lost the vote again, right? Ned, look at me. Yeah. In the House of Lords. Yeah, in the House yeah. of Lords. But I mean, are we going to repeat the same conversation we had last week? Which is basically the government aren't going to change their mind over this. They're just going to not going to change the legislation. The Commons are going to push it through and they go back to the Lords again. I think that's right. Yeah. But the one proviso, which is that what's different about this vote, is it's about Parliament's role on the final deal rather than the EU citizens thing, which is kind of, you know, separate issue. And more, more Tory rebels are more steamed up about this. But let's look. It's worth comparing this with what we've been talking about earlier, which is the Nick's rise. How many senior Tories, like Ian Duncan Smith, for example, you know, how many how many senior Tories are really going to rebel on on this Brexit bill? And virtually none. I think we saw in the last week again something that has been missed in the past week was the so-called Tory rebellion on the Dubs Amendment yeah. translated into just three, three. Tories. And you know, all this talk about twenty Tories, and it brings us back thirty to the point. Tories. You wrote in your memo, Paul. <laughs> Some had talked about thirty, not me, but. I think what's interesting about that is it, what does it take to be a Tory rebel under Theresa May? And, and what did it take to be a Tory rebel under David Cameron? If you're under David Cameron, it was easy to be a Tory rebel. You were Eurosceptic. You voted against the whip on things like wanting a referendum. You know, massive rebellion. 81 MPs vote against him. Don't forget on that. They have a core of support on things like that. Under Theresa May, if you're a rebel... Either you're a sort of social liberal, doesn't like some of the harder edge things they're doing, like on benefits or welfare or tax credits or whatever, or you're a sort of Europhile or Remainer who's a bit irritated with life, but there's not many of you. And crucially, a lot of them are former ministers, and former ministers are instinctively not rebels. Dominic Grieve, it's not in his bloodstream to be a rebel. Nikki Morgan, she rebelled for the first time this week. You know, they're not used to it. It's a habit being a rebel. You need organisation, you need commitment, and you need to make damn sure that you know what the numbers are on the day and parliamentary procedure. And I don't think they've got many of those assets, to be honest. They haven't got the need a good Jeremy Corbyn figure in there. Yeah, I just don't think there's enough of them. Uh, Let's have uh, the Brexit jingle. (laughs) 
Okay, so uh, what are we thinking this week? I mean, it's, it's back slightly Farron again, is it? There wasn't much in the budget about Brexit, was there? There wasn't like. Well, that's why I think no. Farron actually. It's yeah, a, I said it, Farron, it is more yeah. Farron than Farage because you know they had the Lords win. All right, it's, it's a pyrrhic victory; it's temporary; it'll be overturned. But it is a win for this week, and the fact that you know, as the SNP's Stuart Hosey, who did give a very good performance hmm. in the budget response, said, you know, Brexit is the love that dare not speak its name, or was yesterday. Remainer Chancellor Hammond really did didn't even utter the B word. He just said, referred to it once about leaving the European Union. So, And if they're nervous about that, then I think that is a good week for Farron because it shows a sort of nervousness about the whole thing. Excellent. Right, let's move on. So last week it was pizza with Matt Ford. This week it was pizzazz with Jess Phillips. Oh, <laughs> how did you do that? Oh, I, I hate you so much. <laughs> the Labour... Can you write my headlines in the morning? <laughs> The Labour MP popped into just carry on. The Labour MP popped into HuffPost HQ on Wednesday for a chat about her new book, Feminism and Labour's Women Problem. As forthright as ever, Jeff's Jeff? Jeff, Jeff. described her party as systematically sexist, but that has, of course, not dampened her ambitions. Would you ever stand for Deputy Leader? No, would you ever stand for Leader? <laughs> would you ever stand for uh, Would you ever stand for Would you ever stand for Leader one day? Um, I, I would, and I say that I would because I think I am duty-bound to not be that sort of shrinking flower that goes, oh, you know, I just couldn't possibly. Um, because I think that actually one of the problems that women have in stepping forward is women are much less willing to verbalise and visualise their own ambition and I want women to stop doing themselves down and want them to be able to say, yeah, you're damn right I should be the boss of this company, you're damn right I should, you know, get this promotion. So, yes, I wouldn't do anything, I wouldn't work anywhere if I wasn't interested in trying to get to the very top. Not a shrinking flower, she's going to stand for leadership. Is Jess Phillips going to be the next Labour leader? Jess or Jeff Phillips? Jess Phillips. Is Jess Phillips going to be the next Labour leader? Ned. Oh, I mean, I Ned. All right, put me on the spot with Come that. Um, probably not, but I think she should have a go. I think if you're talking about people who need to be authentic, who aren't from London, who have that kind of independent thought everyone says we need, then she's definitely an example of that, isn't she? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with Ned. Um, I, you know, fair play to her for, for at least saying, look, what she's doing there, I don't think she's saying realistically, I, you know, will get it. But she's saying, I'd, it's worth a crack. Why shouldn't I say I, I'd, I'd have a crack at it? It's putting your money where your mouth is, isn't it? She it makes is. the point. I can't sit around and moan about the fact there's never been a woman leader. And then yeah. if the position comes up, however, I decide to go for it. And there's a big however. You know, to be Labour leader, as we've seen with Jeremy Corbyn, it takes... It, not just the fact that you've been in, in Parliament for a long time, that doesn't matter. Uh, you know, it, what takes is experience on the front bench to avoid mistakes. And Jess hasn't been on the front bench. It would be very, very unusual to go straight from the back benches, having been here ba- barely a couple of years, rather than being someone who's been on the back benches like Jeremy Corbyn for 30-odd years and still finds it tough. So it's hard. And that's why I, I think you're seeing in Corbyn's shadow cabinet, there's a lot of inexperience. People have never been on the front bench in their lives. And it's a skill. You know, it, we see them in the chamber, you know, being able to do all that stuff. I know it, people say outside in the wider party, it's not that big a deal, but it is a big deal. It's where it makes you in the comments. And also one point is that Jess Phillips has said before that she's very worried that her generation of MPs, a lot of them kind of the lost generation, expecting not to keep their seats at the next election. So she might not even get the chance. The full interview with Jess Phillips, you can watch it online or you can download it as a separate podcast. And um, it is really worth a listen because whether you love or loathe Jess Phillips, you do get straight answers to questions from her. And she has got a very good take on it and one point which I think is particularly interesting in the interview is she agrees that the the strong Labour women in the party should come together for the next leadership contest 
to make sure that one of them gets on the ballot to nominate. So we used to seeing, you know, the kind of the progress candidate or the kind of hard left candidate or the Tribune candidate. I wouldn't be surprised if next time we see the kind of quote unquote feminist candidate, we see that the female candidate we're going to get behind you. I mean, she called out Yvette Cooper, someone who could do it. Well, that's um, why it's interesting because next time, and when, if and when there is a next time, there's, there'll be a massive pressure within the PLP to have one candidate against a Corbyn candidate. There'll be a huge pressure. We can't have a bun fight. If there is a Corbyn candidate on the ballot, that is, then you know the, the, the Corbyn sceptics are going to have to co- co- coalesce around one person. And if on top of that it's got to be a woman, then it gets interesting. All um, of a sudden the Venn diagram. I mean, so we're looking basically... So it's a woman who's not a Corbyn sister who's got front bench experience who's seen as being a bit of part of the future. Step forwards, possibly. Lisa and Andy, possibly. I saw her speak this week at the IPPR, and she went down a storm. I mean, it was a speech about why Labour's lost touch with Britain or England, more specifically, England's towns rather than its cities. Labour's obviously still doing well in cities. I mean, you've got it. It's, it's virtually unopposed in Manchester. There's one Lib Dem. Uh, I think it's John Leach, the former MP. There's one guy. You know, places like Newham, Labour has no opposition whatsoever. 60 councillors to no opposition. There are these places up and down the country where Labour is concentrated in cities. But in towns, the places where you win swing marginals and where actually a lot of its former vote are, a lot of some of these slightly deprived areas... You know, that's where Labour is, has been losing, not just to UKIP, but to the Tories. And she and other MPs, I think, Ned said, you know, Yvette Cooper has been talking about this town's agenda. That's, the, in a way, the only road back to Parliament for Labour is by persuading people in the towns that they're, they're on their side without saying, oh, you're, you're all the left behinds. We're going to patronise you. Excellent. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for that. Um, we'll be back again next week to be discussing. What are we talking about next week, do you reckon? What's Politics coming up? and stuff. Politics and yeah. stuff. More Brexit. I Probably think it might well budget. be Brexit, but you know why? Because Article 50 is looming, guys. Do you think it's 22 days, isn't it? Yeah, She's got left coming. trigger, hasn't it? I know, but next week, the clock? The, yeah. next week, the Commons is going to obviously overturn yeah. some of this stuff from the Lords, and we're going to see the countdown towards firing that starting gun. Join us for the countdown on Commons People. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.